Hi, this is Pastor Emily McGinley from Urban Village Church, Hyde Park, Woodlawn. If you've been to UVC, you'll know that we seek to be three things, bold, inclusive, and relevant. We know that there are countless folks across the country and out there in podcast land like yourself, seeking a message that will bring insight, hope, encouragement, and joy as we do this thing called faith. Please consider making a financial gift to help us with this work of inspiring, equipping, and sending out agents of gospel life and inclusive love. Just go to www.urbanvillagechurch.org forward slash give. Thanks for listening, and God bless. Our first scripture is from Matthew chapter 4, verses 8 through 10. Listen for what God is saying to us. The devil brought him to a very high mountain and showed him all of the kingdoms of the world and their glory. He said, I'll give you all of these if you bow down and worship me. Jesus responded, go away, Satan, because it is written, you will worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Our second scripture comes from Matthew chapter 8, verse 28 through 34. Listen again for what God is saying. When Jesus arrived on the other side of the lake in the country of Gadarenes, Two men were demon possessed, who were demon possessed, came from among the tombs to meet him. They were so violent that nobody could travel on that road. They cried out, What are you going to do with us, son of God? Have you come to torture us before the time of judgment? Far off in the distance, a large herd of pigs was feeding. The demons pleaded with him, If you throw us out, send us into the herd of pigs. Then he said to the demons, Go away. And they came out and went into the pigs. The whole herd rushed down the cliff into the lake and drowned. Those who tended the pigs ran into the city and told everyone that had happened to the demon-possessed men. Then the whole city came out and met Jesus. When they saw him, they pleaded with him to leave their region. May God add a blessing to the reading, hearing, understanding of these words. Good morning, Urban Village. Uh, I'm Josh Lee, and I'm the uh, church planning intern, uh, particularly at the Wicker Park site, but they move me around to preach at all the sites. Uh, and so this morning, I get blessed to be able to be here with you all. Um, before I preach, I always like to share a little bit uh, about myself. Uh, I think that's important that you know kind of where I'm coming from, my story, um, the kind of some of the things I've wrestled through. I always hate listening to someone talk and being like, I don't know anything about you. I don't want to listen to you. Um, so I just thought I would share with you just a quick glimpse of kind of my, my story. I grew up in the Chicago, in the Chicago suburbs in Elgin, Illinois. I uh, grew up in a, in a charismatic church that my grandmother took me to every Sunday, would drag me in, and I would want to sit in the front row at five years old and just soak up whatever the preacher was saying. And then I would get home and I would drag out this broken down music stand, sort of like this, but not broken. Maybe this was a little wobbly. And, uh, and then I would start preaching whatever little five-year-old truths I could take away from the sermon that day. Uh, the, ser- the Sunday that the pastor preached on adultery, let's just say that was an interesting uh, remix that I had <laughs> when I came home. Uh, <clears throat> and my grandma always knew at that point, she said, you're going to be a preacher one day, Jay, you're going to be a preacher. And, uh, and so I sort of held on to that, and uh, when my parents divorced, that was a rocky time for me, and uh, I stopped going to church for, for several years, and then when I was about 12, my uh, my my uh, my mother didn't know what to do with me because the school said, this kid's a menace, he's got one more shot, and we're sending him to a disciplinary school. And my mom said, well, I don't know what to do with you, so I'm going to drop you off at this church, and they're going to fix you. 
And so she did. She dropped me off, and in my very first Sunday, just sort of everything that my grandma had instilled in me, you know, as a little toddler, sort of kind of came back to me. And I was like, man, I really need this. I need the Holy Spirit to fill me, and I need God's grace, and I, I need help being this person that everybody wants me to be that I can't seem to be and live into. And so I gave my life to Christ and began a journey uh, of sort of recalibrating. And uh, it, was, it was not long into that journey that uh, the, the children's pastor at the church said, Josh, I think God has a call in your life to be a pastor. And I had remembered my grandma saying that to me. And so at 13 years old, I started ministry in my high school uh, that grew to over 100 students. The school tried to force us out, and we sued them so that we could stay. And, uh, and then that ministry grew even larger. And so then there was this local American Baptist church in Elgin that said, we have a whole west wing of our building vacant. We would love if you came and have your meetings there. And so we merged with them, and their youth started to attend, and that became my very first job. I got hired on as their youth director when I was 17. And then when I graduated from high school, they said, if you want to keep this job, you need to get some letters behind your name. You should go to Moody Bible Institute. And so I started attending Moody. And while I was at Moody, I met a professor there, and his name was Dr. Christopher Yuan. And he believed that the response to homosexuality is singleness and celibacy, and he's committed to this himself as a gay professor at Moody. And so I sort of went, okay, so this is what I'm supposed to do with my sexuality. I had really repressed and been in denial about that for most of my life and then realized, so wait, I can be a Christian, I can be a pastor, and I can be gay. I just have to be celibate was what, uh, sort of the narrative I bought into. And so I committed to that, but in that commitment, I lost my job at the church. They couldn't handle that part of my journey. And so I went back to the church I grew up in, became the, uh, the co-pastor there, did that for a year. And while I was there uh, for that year, the superintendent found out that I was gay. And even though I was committed to celibacy, that was not okay. Because in the Assemblies of God, you can be delivered of what's called gay demons and be exercised. Uh, and in, in essence, this is gone, done through conversion therapy and laying out of hands and exorcism type things. And they told me I needed to go through this. And I refused. Uh, and so I was told, you must resign. And so today as we come to our text, uh, we're going to be talking about demons. We're going to be talking about evil. And so that part of my story is sensitive, and we'll, we'll come back to that later. Because after I left that church, uh, I spent the last two years of undergrad trying to figure out how am I going to live into my call? How am I going to do what God wants me to do? It would still be authentic to myself. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not acting on the gay lifestyle, as they would call it, but it's still not good enough. And so the day after graduation, uh, I had applied to over 1,000 churches across denominational lines in those two years. And uh, the day after graduation, I had a church that asked me to move to pastor them in Madisonville, Kentucky. Uh, and so I went and I was a part of that church. And that church went from about 40 to 120 uh, in those two years. And it was a great time in my life that I was sort of like, wow, this is what I always wanted, I always desired. But at the same time, I was miserable personally. I mean, ever been there? Like, I had great success ministry-wise, professionally, but personally, I was like, I could not be any more miserable. And, and I thought, I would trade all of this just to, just to be able to have someone to share this with in my life. And so I started studying gay-affirming theology uh, during my last year, and after a long year of study, I realized, you know what? I believe God made me this way, and this is a beautiful thing. And, and I can love another man um, just as Christ loves the church just as he's called uh, a man and a woman to love one another. And I can reflect that, and I think that's a beautiful thing, and I don't think there's anything wrong with it. And so finally, after 24 years of wrestling through that, I re resigned, left my church, and came out in affirmation. 
of, of gay marriage around the time that, that the Supreme Court voted uh, just within a week of their vote. And uh, long story short, I've spent the last two years um, sort of rebuilding because my whole world sort of fell apart after that. Uh, I lost a lot of people, a lot of network. Um, it was very difficult to find a job um, because I did not grow up in liberal or progressive Christianity. And so um, having to sort of reestablish some roots there was new for me. And part of that process was going back to school. And so I'm in seminary at Garrett Theological, learning progressive theology, and then also accepted this job at Urban Village uh, because I thought this would be a great opportunity, a better place to learn uh, progressive theology in an evangelical setting um, where Jesus is still exalted, but all people are welcomed. Uh, and so that's what brings me to you today with my six-minute story intro. <laughs> uh, literally, I'm timing it. Uh, so I, I share that story with you because, uh, I, I, yes, I want to establish some credibility, but, but also I, I really, I also want you to know that, that I've been through some journeys uh, with, what, with what I would call, at certain points, I call this a battle with sin, Right? and a battle with demons. Uh, and sometimes, uh, as I look back, the demons weren't always what I thought they were. And sometimes what I thought was supposed to be people who were bringing deliverance were really my oppressors. And, and so as we come to these texts today, I want us to keep this in mind. Uh, C.S. Lewis says, People uh, often make two mistakes in considering demons and demon activity. They either discount it and they think nothing of it, or they become too fascinated and preoccupied with it. And so my goal is for us to not do either of those, but is to find ourselves in the midst of a healthy biblical perspective on demonology and our battles with sin and what that looks like in our life. I don't believe, uh, and, and, and again, you don't have to agree with me on everything I say, but I don't believe that, that, that Christians who are filled with the Holy Spirit uh, can be possessed by a demon. But I do believe that they can be oppressed by a demon. I don't think you can be filled with the Spirit and filled with the devil at the same time. But I do believe you can be filled with the Spirit and have a, have, have a Jesus moment out in the desert where, where Satan is just, he's, he's on your tail. And, and you're trying to shake it off and you just can't. And I, as we come to the text today, I, I, I want us to also do one other thing that I think is extremely important. And that's to define the difference between evil and sin. Um, and, and, and because I think there's a wide gamut of what people think sin is, right? And so here's what I think evil is. Evil is anything that causes harm to people or anything that can cause, cause harm to people or God's creation, right? And we are part of that creation. Sin is an active participation in the harm of people in God's creation. You say, well, what do you mean by that? What, what does that look like practically? Um, here, here's a great example for you. When, when David, King David in the Bible, sleeps with Bathsheba, then goes and kills her husband to cover it all up, right? And, and, and let me rewind and say, sleeps with Bathsheba is a very generous interpretation of it. When King David rapes Bathsheba, because she was a woman who in that society could not have said no to King David when she was summoned, without her life probably also being taken. And she was used and manipulated and held and taken as a man who has power and knows that he can, what he says he gets, and he got it, and he took it from her. And after he does this sin, he then goes, because he finds out that, that uh, the situation's got a little bit more fishy, so he then, to cover it all up, he goes and he kills her husband, as her husband killed. And then David, who we know in Scripture, is, is described as a man after God's own heart, 
prays this prayer. Against you and you alone, God, have I sinned. How ignorant. You have raped a woman and killed a man. And you think you've only sinned against God? You have sinned against that woman and you've sinned against that man. So I want us to to describe a a broader version of, of what this is. The reason that he has sinned against that woman and he has sinned against that man is because... And, 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 that, and that's a sin against God is because that breaks God's heart that he has raped one of his daughters. That breaks God's heart that he has killed one of his sons. He has sinned. And the reason he has sinned is because he has hurt God's children, God's creation. He has caused harm. So as we come to this text in Matthew chapter 8, beginning in verse 28, and, and we begin to see this experience where there's these, these demonic uh, men that come upon Jesus as he comes upon the shores. It says, when he came to the other side, these two demoniacs coming out of the tombs met him. They were so fierce that no one could pass that way. So they, they, they put them to live in a, a place where no one really wants to go, right, uh, would be... Uh, 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 what's it called? I'm trying, I don't know why it's just blanked my brain. Where they, where they put dead bodies. Thank you. Bless you. Uh, yes, they, they, send, they, they, they put these people in the graveyards. Mark's account says that these men are naked. Uh, actually, Mark only has one person in the account, not two men. But it says that they're naked, and they, sometimes they chain them up because they're just so crazy. And they put them on the outskirts of town. We don't want to deal with them. And this was normal in, in culture. If there was someone that, 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 someone that they felt uncomfortable with or that they didn't like, they'd put them in the, on the outskirts. We could think of people like lepers who they would also do this. But they just kind of throw them away. How often is it that even today we discard and tuck away unclean people in our communities? Let me say that again. How often is it that we discard or tuck away people that we claim to be unclean in our communities? How often do we determine that certain people's sins are worse than others and that some people's lives are less valuable? How often do we expel the oppressed person out of our presence instead of trying to expel the evil that systematically inflicts that person to keep them in their oppression? Come on. I'm getting ready to to start a a, a chaplaincy program at, at Northwestern Medicine and I was sitting during this interview process and discussing with uh, some of the, the chaplains that are there now, and I said, what are, what's some of the biggest conflicts you face here? They said, well, you know that Chicago is the murder capital of our country, and where we are located particularly, there are, this is where most of the shootings, people who are shot, are brought. And a lot of these shootings are uh, between gang members. And he said, one of the biggest problems that we see within chaplains here is that people will come in as new chaplains and they treat those who are shot in these gang fights differently. And they're not merciful or apathetic towards the families who come in and their loved ones have been shot and are on the table. And they don't understand why doctors fight so hard to keep them alive. And, I, and I'm, I'm trying to catch myself as he's telling me this. And he's like, and so we really have to work with people who are new here to realize what would ever make you think that this person's life is worth any less than yours? 
And what is it, what ideals and world do you live in that you think that we shouldn't fight for these people just as much as we'd fight for anybody else? And why are you calling them these people? But we write these narratives in our minds, and I, I, I think about uh, even the AIDS crisis that happened and that is still happening. And the mindsets of some people during that time of, well, they brought this upon themselves, just let them die. Why are we working for a cure? Why are we trying to save them? Why are we taking care of them? They just shouldn't have done X, Y, Z. What? The ignorance. Just let them die. It'll make the world a better place, is what you're saying. Think about uh, prostitutes. And how people shame them. And make them feel like they're less than or not worthy of God's love. And they don't even take a moment to stop and ask themselves, what are the systems that are set up that have put this person in this situation? And, and, and by you casting them out to the graveyard, how are you helping them in any way? How, how, what, what are the people in your mind that you can think about that our society says, you know what, you're unclean, you're untouchable, I don't see life value to your life, your life is not as valuable as mine because of X, Y, Z. We're going to cast you out to the outer edges. We don't even want to come near you or by you. You're just hopeless. And we just hope you die. That's exactly what has happened with these demoniacs in this passage. They have just casted them out and casted them aside as hopeless. But Jesus, turn to the person next to you and say, but Jesus... Come on now, turn to the person next to you and say, but Jesus. He shows up and he's like, oh, hell no. That is not what I stand for. You cast them aside and I go to them. And I say, come on back into the fold. Bring me and bring them back in because they cast me out too. And I kick the dust off my feet and I say, you walk in the dust behind me. Let's get the hell out of here. We'll leave them behind. And when they're ready, they can join us. Because the people who he, Jesus wants following him are the ones that say all can come to the table. And so Jesus meets these men in verse 22. And suddenly they shout, what have you to do with us, son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? I think it's always important to remember that, that, that when these men are speaking right here, that it's not these men speaking, it's the evil in them. The devil has so not just oppressed them, but has possessed them that they're not even speaking now. Oftentimes when you meet people who are under oppression from the devil in any way and with some type of sin, that sin has often overridden who they are. I can think about this with my father who is an alcoholic. And my father has let me down so many times. And has hurt me so many times. Yet when I talk about my dad, I always say this. My dad is a good man. But when he drinks, he's a different man. Something takes him over. Something overrides the man that I know. And all of a sudden, I see an angry man. I see an aggressive man. I see a depressive man. I see a selfish man that rises up in him. But you know why I'm able to love my dad still and I'm able to sit across the table from him and have a meal with him? Because I believe that I also can be a very angry man sometimes. 
I also can be a very depressive man sometimes. I also can be very selfish sometimes. And although I may not be able to blame that on alcohol, I can blame that on a lot of other things that oppress me, that hold me, that have their grip on me, that make me do dumb things and disappoint people all the freaking time. And I could sit across the table and say, listen, we're in the same battle here. We're fighting the same enemy. And although there may be some boundaries in our relationship because I don't want the enemy to get to me through you per se, I will always love you and I will always honor you because I'm in the same boat as you. And Jesus meets them in this place. I don't believe we are made evil. I believe we are influenced, oppressed, and tormented and often inflicted by it. Verse 30 says, Now a large herd of swine was feeding at some distance from them. The demons begged him, If you can't, if you cast this out, send us into the herd of swine. And he said to them, Go. Just one word. Just go. (laughs) So they came out and they entered the swine, a bunch of pigs, and suddenly the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and perished into the water. The swine ran off and, and, and on going into the town. Uh, sorry, the swine's herd ran off and going into the town. They told the whole story about what had happened to the demoniacs. And here's the part I really want you to catch. So Jesus delivers these men of these demons, right? Kills 200 of their pigs because they have a demon and they run off into the water. And then the whole town comes to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to leave their neighborhood. What? This guy just did a miraculous act in your presence. He just saved these people who you deemed as detestable, as unclean, as unwelcomed in your community. And your first response is, get the hell out of here. To me, it seems that they cared more about protecting their privilege and their possessions than they did the possession of these men. And the deliverance and life that they would now experience. If I had a Jesus like that in my presence, all I, I would want him to stay because I would think, what hope you hold within just one word? How much more could you change and fix in our community? This man who, who calms the storm, who, who commands illness to depart, who commands demons to leave, how much more could he restore our community? Yet I tell him to leave because why? He killed 200 of our pigs. Perhaps they didn't care for these men and the deliverance they experienced. Perhaps all they cared about was protecting their own assets, their own privilege. Perhaps they were too possessed by their earthly possessions as these two demonic men were too possessed by the devil. Perhaps they had more discreet evil in their hearts. Maybe their evil didn't manifest like these men who were in this tomb. Perhaps their evil was systematic and they could look at one another and see the same evil in one another and so they didn't see the evil in themselves. Is this not the confession that Nathan gave us to us this morning? As they bring a close to this message, I want us to just think of this one thing. Evil is not always as evident as we, as we may see in this passage today. It's interesting that they included that last verse in the story that they told Jesus to go away. 
In this story, we see evil manifest itself in this intense way where these demoniacs run and they're overtaken by what's clearly Satan and Jesus delivers them. But then we see people who I think live under a form of oppression. A people who didn't even see their need for Jesus when he shows up and does a miraculous act before them. A people who don't even see their sickness. And we live in a world today where evil is all around us and unfortunately people don't even see it. They don't even see the sickness. They don't even see the oppression that they're under and the oppression that they're inflicting on others. Instead, they live into the benefits of their oppression. But I believe Jesus calls us to say, no. No. I have a better way. I have a liberating way. I call you out of that to acknowledge your state and your need for me. These men who I delivered, you need me just as much as they needed me. Don't send me away. You know, when we see sin in other people's lives, when we see demons and people battling evil, people usually respond in two ways. And I want you to ask yourself this morning, which one am I? People either throw stones and they judge to distract people from the own, their own sin and to make other people's sin look worse than theirs, to make another person look detestable and unclean so that they don't look so bad. Or people do the second thing. They drop their stones. They show mercy. They acknowledge their own sin and that it levels the ground at the cross and they realize... I'm just as broken and in need of Jesus as you are. I pray today that we would be a people that would drop our stones, that would acknowledge, I need Jesus to deliver me of my oppression and my possession and my privilege just as much as everyone else needs Jesus. Amen. Thanks be to God.